Our Old Testament lesson comes to us to this day from Exodus chapter 24, verses 12 through 18. I will be reading from the New Revised Standard Versions. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written on their instructions. So Moses set out with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. To the elders he had said, Wait here for us until we may come to you again, for Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute may go with them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord settled in the mount in Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up from the mountain. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Our gospel lesson comes to us this day from the Gospel of Mark, the ninth chapter, verses 2 through 10. I invite us to listen for God's word speaking to us this day, and I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make you three dwellings. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Do you all have those places in your life that feel extraordinary? Those places where you feel God's presence more than others? I have been going to Montreat for over 20 years. Oh my gosh, over 30 years now. I'm so old. (laughs) For over 30 years. And it has been a few years since I've been able to get the opportunity to go there, and I can feel it. I can feel it in my spirit. For me, Montreat is a place that I would call a thin space, a place where I experience God's presence every time I am there. 
in very real and palpable ways every time that I am there. So if you don't know, Montreat is in North Carolina, about 20 minutes east of Asheville, nestled in a valley surrounded by beautiful mountains. To get there, you have to drive up the mountain to the valley. And as you go up and you drive through the Montreat Gate, you get the feeling that you are setting yourself apart. Mostly because your cell phone no longer works, but you get that feeling that you are literally crossing through into a separate place, a thin place where God's presence can be seen and felt as you move through the community. You're setting yourself apart from the ordinary patterns of life and feels as if you are moving into extraordinary time. So I'm not alone. Presbyterian groups from all across the country go to Montreat for conferences, for retreats, for vacations. It's like the Presbyterian Mecca. What draws people to this place? I think it's a deep desire for an extraordinary moment. That encounter that comes when you feel God's presence on that mountain. So Presbyterians aren't alone. The mountaintop has long been a place in the history of human yearning where God has been found. Maybe the idea of the mountaintop was planted in our heads by Moses, who gathered his courage and retreated to the mountain of God to receive God's instruction in the form of the Ten Commandments. Jesus often retreated to the high places for times of prayer and reflection in preparation for or to ground himself after big events in his life. A few weeks ago, we saw Jesus retreat to the mountains where he delivered the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples after he had been through Galilee healing and teaching and casting out demons. Just before today's reading from Mark, Jesus revealed to his disciples that he was going to suffer the humiliation of being rejected and that he was going to die and be resurrected three days later. Jesus said this to his disciples, and Peter, with a whole bunch of nerve, rebuked him, saying, you you can't say this about yourself. You are too important. You can't go through these things. We will protect you. We will keep you apart. Jesus would have none of that. He had already spent time in the desert being tempted by the devil. He was not going to be tempted by his disciples. Get behind me, Satan, he said to Peter. Because Peter just wasn't seeing the full picture of who Jesus was. None of the disciples were. Jesus turned that rebuke back on Peter and at the same time drew in all of the disciples. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus did not want to be tempted. He did not want to avoid the risk that he knew he had to take in order to show forth 
the glory and grace of God in the world. Jesus used this moment to tell his disciples that they had this problem. You see, they had this problem of holding too tightly to their earthly expectations. They had this problem of wanting things to be just as they always expected them to be, because that's what they knew. For six days, this conversation lingered in Jesus' mind. The text tells us that six days later, they go up the mountain. So for six days, I believe that Jesus had this conversation with Peter and the disciples lingering in their mind. And I bet that the disciples were also wondering, what did he mean? What is going on? What is Jesus thinking? Why does he want to be rejected? Why does he want to go through all of this? So when Jesus told Peter, James, and John to come with him, to go up a mountain for some time of prayer, they jump at the chance. Though they had no idea what was in store for them that day, they jumped at the chance to go. More than two millennia later, I don't think any of us truly understand what really happened there on that mountain. When Jesus' clothes become dazzling white, whiter than any of us could ever bleach them, as much as you like to think your grandmother could bleach anything, nothing is as white as the clothes that Jesus ended up wearing in that moment. I'll be honest, I have no idea what happened up on that mountain. A lot of people have written about it. A lot of people have pontificated about it. But do any of us really understand it? I don't think so. Mark's version of this account is the shortest of any of the Gospel writers. He uses the fewest details. So while something miraculous and mysterious and dazzling and revealing does indeed happen, we learn in Mark's beginner's guide, if you will, that nothing about the nature of Jesus is revealed here is new. The divine voice that is heard saying, this is my son, the beloved, listen to him, is the same voice that was heard at Jesus' baptism. But what is different about this event is that here in the center of Mark's gospel, the veil of God's big plan concerning Jesus is lifted. Here we are given a vision of the past, the present, and the future all at once. On the way to the future, which holds for Jesus the cross where he will suffer and die, he stands on the mountaintop, illumined, transfigured, if you will, by the past, where Moses and Elijah join him. Moses, the giver of the law, and Elijah, the prophet of God. In a glimpse, we see the broad scope of God's plan. In a moment, we experience the eternal. The Presbyterians who make the trek to Montreat 
those of us who go to whatever your thin places might be for a sense of a connection to God are a lot like Peter, James, and John. We are wishing for an experience that would provide us a glimpse of God's plan. We are wishing for understanding that will help us know that we are not alone. But when those moments come along, when we draw close to God's presence, we find ourselves afraid. Afraid and that that we are becoming out of control. We try to domesticate those experiences of the holy by fitting it into our plan. We don't understand what happened on that mountain. How can I control it? How can I make sense of it? Like the disciples, we want to find ways to build dwellings in that place, up there, on that mountain, to keep the experience, to keep the divine there. Not here. Not in our hearts. We want to build dwellings to house Jesus and Elijah and Moses so that they're safe and comfortable there where we can experience them when we want instead of opening the doors of our hearts so that their truth and their promise can fill us in new ways. I suspect that as much as we want an encounter with God, we simultaneously fear the presence of God because we fear being changed. We fear being transformed. What we have, who we are, it may not be everything that we want, but at least we know it. At least we have our hands on it and we have figured it out through the years. We are used to it. With all of its blessings and all of its struggles, we're used to the way things are. And we've built a relatively orderly life around it. And so, when God comes, in the ordinary hopes, in our ordinary encounters and tragedies of our lives, When God comes and unsettles everything that we know, everything that we've constructed, we try to put these disruptive experiences back into order by cramming them into our plan. This is why I think Moses comes down from the mountain of God with ten commandments that make it abundantly clear that we are not supposed to worship any other gods. When we read Paul's many letters, we get the clear warning that the gods, little g, of this world are the things that block us from seeing the light of Christ already surrounding us. The gods, little g, of this world are the things we use to domesticate Christ's radiance, Christ's work in our lives. Whatever it may be for us, our busy schedules, our important meetings, our soccer games, our football practices, our play rehearsals, our work schedules, or our busy volunteer work. 
All of those things are about us, about the things we do. But the transfiguration reminds us that as people of faith, we are not about telling the world how great we are, how important we are. We are about creating spaces in our lives for the holy to enter in and to show forth our faces, our hands, our feet, how great God is. How amazing the love of Jesus is at work in our lives. Even the work that we do in God's name has not been immune from our attempts to domesticate and control God's presence in our lives. For too long, the church has gone out into the world to serve in the name of God, to carry good news out into the world, to provide for the needs that we have identified in the world. Missions expert Miriam Adney relates a story told to her by an African Christian friend. It's about elephant and mouse. Elephant and mouse were best friends. One day, elephant said, Hey, mouse, let's have a party. And animals gathered from far and near. They ate and drank and sang and danced. And nobody celebrated more exuberantly than elephant. After it was over, Elephant exclaimed, Mouse, did you go ever go to a better party? What a celebration. Mouse. But Mouse did not answer. Mouse, where are you? Elephant called. And then he shrank back in horror. There at his feet lay Mouse, his body ground into the dirt, smashed by the exuberance of his friend, the elephant. Sometimes that is what it is like to do mission with you Westerners, more specifically you Western Christians the African storyteller commented. It is like dancing with elephant. For too long, we have tried to control how we experience God in the world. For too long, we have tried to tell others how they should experience God in the world, which has limited our ability to hear and see Christ already present in the world. It has limited our ability to experience the dazzling, radiant joy of Christ present and moving in the world today. We go into the world with our minds made up, with a clear list of what needs to be accomplished and how to accomplish it. We know that we want to build three dwellings on the mountain. And this has resulted, I fear, in the church, not Rocky River specifically, but the church, missing the image of God already present 
because we have been too busy trying to stick to a plan that we have created that allows us to control far too much. But maybe Jesus, on that mountain so long ago, helped us to see that there isn't a plan. Maybe there's just love. Radiant, shiny, beautiful love. And perhaps our job is to bear witness to that love. To bear witness to that love already present and active in the people around us. To bear witness to Christ's love already present and at work in the world. To bear witness and be transfigured by Christ's presence so that others can see Christ in us. Maybe, just maybe, we should be less worried about building booths to make Christ's presence neat and tidy and be more concerned about standing together in the mystery of God's love so that we might experience that love. Mark's gospel shows us that we are called to the toughest work. We are called to put aside the gods of this world in order to bear witness, to bear witness and to hear the word of the one true God fill the world. Like Peter and James and John, we are called to stand and witness and then to leave this place as those who have seen God's glory in Christ Jesus. Christ calls us to leave this place. And did you catch it? To not say a word about it. To not go out into the world and fill it, and this is ironic, with more words but that we should leave this place experiencing Christ's love and then show that forth by how we live. Show it forth so that others experience it and not just hear it. So friends, be transfigured. Go out into the world and risk living the love of God that you might show forth the radiance of Christ's joy, the radiance of Christ's love for all who might need to experience that this day. Amen.